Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. As he said, Toby England, I work at a college uh, up the road at West Coast, and I'm down here tonight to continue a series. Last week, we began by talking about why this is important. What this is, is apologetics. We said apologetics isn't getting better at saying I'm sorry. We said apologetics is actually giving a defense for what we believe. It's not enough for us to know what we believe, we also have to know why. And there's a lot of reasons why we have to know why, but one really good reason that we talked about last week is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 15, where the Bible says that we need to be ready to give an answer to anyone that asks us a reason of the hope that lies within us. I have a hope that goes beyond anything I see on TV. Are you there tonight? I have a hope, I have a faith, I have a trust and a confidence and an expectation of what God has done, of what God is doing, of my future as a child of God. It's amazing. But the Bible says when somebody asks you a reason or asks you for why you believe that, we need to be able to provide a reason. So therefore, for you and I, this is a part of our mandate as a Christian. This is something that, that we need to continue to grow in. So last week we said... The Bible in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20 says you don't need a Bible to know that God exists. The Bible says that, that you don't need a Bible to know that God exists. Now, why would that be? Well, let me say something that sounds kind of weird, especially in church, but it's absolutely true. The Bible is all true, but it's not all truth. In this sense, my birthday is February 4th. That's when I was born. I'm not going to give you the year. Now, that's true because it's on my passport and I've got a birth certificate. It's on my driver's license. That's my true birthday. Is that in the Bible? Of course not. Is that a problem? Of course not. We don't expect everything that is true to be in the Bible. What we do expect is that everything that is in the Bible is true. (laughs) And what that means for you and I as Christians, when we read Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20, excuse me, when the Apostle Paul says that heaven's declared—that's that's David in uh, Psalm 19—but when the Apostle Paul says that the invisible things of God through creation are clearly seen, here's, here's, what, here's what Scripture's telling us. God has left us truth about Himself throughout our world. It permeates our world. God's truth saturates the world in which we live. In fact, all truth is God's truth. What that means is that everything that is Everything that is in the Bible is true, and there's a whole lot of truth that God has given through general revelation, and as we go through life, as we learn, as we discover, I don't have to be afraid to go to sleep at night wondering what tomorrow's headlines are in, S- in, in archaeology 
or in history or in, in biology or in astronomy, and I, I never wonder, I wonder what future discovery is going to invalidate my faith. Because the Bible is true. Because truth doesn't contradict itself, therefore truth will never contradict Scripture. You see, that's how strong our faith can be as a Christian, because the Bible is true. I'm not afraid of what other truth will invalidate the Bible. It can't invalidate the Bible. There, there's no facts that can pull the rug out from under your faith, because truth doesn't contradict. The Bible is true, therefore truth will confirm Scripture and help us to show others the way. Now. As, as someone that is a Christian, I ground my faith in the Bible, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. I know we just have a few minutes. We're going to walk through a lot of things, and I hope it's a time of growth. But as a Christian, you probably, if you're a follower of Christ, you'd maybe say the same thing. I think you would. I hope you, I ho I hope you would. But as a Christian, the Bible is my foundation. In fact, it's really what it means to be a Baptist church. This is uh, Liberty Baptist Church, right? What does it mean to be a Baptist? Aren't there other Christians that will go to heaven? Well, really what a Baptist means is it tells you a lot about our position on Scripture. It tells you that we believe that the Bible is our final rule of authority when it comes to faith and practice. We root what we believe and how we live in Scripture. Well, Scripture says, and if you have a Bible, you can join me in 2 Second Timothy chapter number 3 and verse number 15 through 17. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 15. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote so much of the New Testament writing to a young protege, a young man named Timothy, the name of the book. And he's in this, this little hole in the ground, this Mamertine prison. If you go to Rome, you can go see this dank little dungeon that he was in as he wrote this book. And he's getting to the end of his life, and he's thinking about Timothy, and he's writing to Timothy something incredibly important for us to understand. And he says here in verse number 15 of 2 Timothy chapter number 3, But that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. If you're here tonight as a Christian and I ask you, do you believe the Bible? I trust your answer would be yes. But if I were to ask you tonight, why do you believe the Bible? That's where we're going. Now, some of you would say, well, I believe the Bible because the Bible says that the Bible's the Word of God. And it does, and I believe it, and that's incredibly important. But how do you recognize that the Book of Mormon or the Quran or the uh, Vedic, the Rig Veda of Hinduism or uh, Pearl of Great Price or other writings out there claim to be divine truth as well, but they're not. What puts the Bible apart from all of the rest? What makes, what makes the Christian scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, what makes the Bible so unique among all these other supposed sacred writings? Well, again, apologetics is not simply looking at what we believe, but why. 
And there are a couple reasons that we want to look at tonight to bolster our faith in Scripture. I'll give you a heads up as to where we're going. We're going to argue tonight that many of the claims in the Bible can be collaborated from other evidence. Tonight we'll see that the New Testament was written within the lifespan of eyewitnesses. And then we'll look at the manuscripts that God used to keep His words for us today. That's going to be great. How do we know that the Bible, and by the way, I actually reworded a little bit how I even said this, because sometimes there's a difference between knowing and showing. How many of you, you've known something before, and you're fully convinced of it, you're confident, maybe even an aspect of your faith The Bible says His Spirit, Romans chapter 8, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, right? Is there an aspect to being a Christian where the Holy Spirit bears witness that we are a child of God? According to Scripture, the answer is yes, right? That can be a part of your knowing. But what we're talking about tonight is not so much the knowing, it's the showing. How can you give a reason? How can you show that what you believe about Scripture is true. Let me walk through a couple of the areas where the Bible is absolutely unique compared to any other book that claims to be inspired revelation. And that is the Bible makes multiple claims that you can go and you can test. Here's a good rule of thumb. If somebody makes a statement about what they believe, and you want to know whether or not it's true, you can go test whether or not that's true. So if I were to say that, that uh, I drove down here in a Mercedes, I drove a Mercedes to church tonight, and you said, oh, I can test that. Let me test it. Give me your keys. So I reach in my pocket, I hand you your, my keys, and you go out and you try my keys and all the Mercedes in the driveway, you'd actually find it doesn't open any doors at all. Because I drove a Camry. <laughs> but if I said I drove a Mercedes, you could test it, right? You take my keys and you could test it. Well, the same thing is true with Scripture. Scripture makes statements that we can test. Here's the good news. Every time anyone has tested Scriptures, they've been shown to be true. Now, there are some things in the Bible I can't test. I can't test whether or not God is triune in nature. Scripture affirms that. I believe that. But I can't give you a test to show that. But there are a lot of areas in the Bible that you can. Let me give you a couple. When you go throughout Scripture, there are many different instances that disprove the myth that the Bible is just a legendary book. You know how many people have good things to say about the Bible that aren't Christian? How have you met somebody that's not a Christian, but they have a high regard for the Bible or a high regard for Jesus? That's pretty common, isn't it? We'll talk about Jesus next week. Don't miss next week. But a lot of people say, yeah, the Bible, it's a great book. Maybe it's got some things in it that are kind of, you know, kind of from, you know, maybe not quite for the modern age. But, you know, Jesus said a lot of good things, and it says a lot of helpful things. I think maybe a lot of prophets. And, yeah, there's some good things I have to say about the Bible. But that's not what you and I believe, is it? I believe instead that the Bible is an actual historical document that is accurate in all that it affirms. Nothing affirmed in Scripture is different than it states. The Bible is completely, I believe, inerrant and preserved. So if that's the case, 
How do we go back and we test it? Well, there are a lot of people mentioned in Scripture, some of whom we don't have physical evidence of. Sometimes people ask me, can you tell me about the archaeological evidence for Abraham the patriarch? How do you understand Abraham's a pretty important character in the Bible? Let me ask you something. When Abraham left an area where he was living, he was nomadic, right? He was a, he had herds. What was left behind when Abraham left? The holes where his tent stakes were and the, the cow pie, the, the, the sheep pies all over the, pa- the pasture, right? He was, a, he was a, a, a rancher, a nomadic herdsman. But then there are other people, as you go throughout history, you'll find again and again and again and again people that the Bible mentions that pop up exactly where they should in history. The most remarkable example of that, in my opinion, is a person mentioned in the New Testament who actually we have the bones of today. And his name is Caiaphas. You might know the name Caiaphas. He was the high priest during the ministry of Jesus Christ, or actually two high priests during that. Caiaphas was one of them. Caiaphas is a very important character in the New Testament. In fact, he's a part of the hierarchy of the Jews that eventually conspired to put Jesus to death on the cross. In the 1970s, there was a new apartment complex going up in Jerusalem, and just like every time they moved ground there, they had to send an archaeologist to make sure they're not destroying some sacred or historically significant place, because every place over there seems like it's just dripping with history. And in this instance, they found that there were some burial grounds right where they were going to build. So they had to do some remediation. They had to they have protocol on how to handle that before they build a, a, a modern building there. And as they were going through and cataloging this archaeological find, they found an ossuary that had a very specific name on it. Now, I don't use that word a whole lot, ossuary. Let's say that together. Can you say it with me? Ossuary. Good night. What is an ossuary? It's, it's basically a, a limestone box with bones in it. It's a bone box. It's what the Jews would do when they wanted to reuse a tomb. They would have a, a really expensive family tomb. In fact, poor people didn't even get tombs. So they'd have this really expensive family tomb, and they would bury the family patriarch, and then they'd go and they'd live their life for the next couple of years, and maybe somebody else dies and they want to reuse the tomb. What do you do with the old bones? Well, you got it. You gather them together, you put them in an ossuary, and you store them in the, uh, usually somewhere nearby there. So this is an ossuary that has the remains of an elderly Jewish man in his early 60s that is carbon tested and falls right within the first century era, that has a lineage on the side etched into the box that precisely matches the priest during the ministry of Christ in the New Testament. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Caiaphas's ossuary, and inside are the remains of the high priest. Isn't that incredible? Nobody can tell me that the New Testament is just made-up story, like Dan Brown did in the Da Vinci Code, that like 300 years later, Constantine had got this group together, and I see uh, and they just kind of picked what part of Christianity they wanted to make dogma. No, 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 no. The New Testament is historically rooted accurate documentation, and the, the uh, remains of Caiaphas demonstrate that. What about Pilate? Pilate is somebody that you would expect to find. There's a period of time where people made fun of Christians, because we hadn't for a while found evidence of Pilate, surprising as that is. But how do you understand 
absence of evidence isn't evidence that something is false. Just because you can't prove that it is true. So for a while, it wasn't, we weren't sure where to go to prove Pilate's existence until we found the inscription of Pilate by the sea, Caesarea. This is in Philippi of Caesarea. This is a, a, a model of the actual one. The actual one that was found is in a museum. This is still exposed to the weather. And a couple of years ago, I was there. A lot of the pictures you'll see in the next couple of slides are from that trip. And this is an inscription that talks about Pilate of the New Testament. Another really cool passage. In the Old Testament, there was a battle ensuing, and Jerusalem was about to be attacked. If you know anything about old cities, they were built kind of like a castle. Remember the Proverbs? A city broken down and with a man that can't rule his own city, his own, uh, uh, what is the verse? A man that can't rule his own spirit is like a city broken down and without walls. So a city would be kind of like a castle. It would have some walls around. Jerusalem was like that. It was fortified. And if you can't climb the wall, and if you can't bust through the wall, what would people often do to take over a city? They would try to starve them, right? They would siege the city. They'd just surround it and cut off all food and water. Well, the king at the time was Hezekiah, and he knew that this was a likely scenario. He knew that they likely would be sieged. And the Bible makes one little reference in 2 Kings chapter number 20 and verse number 20, that for years people read over without ever stopping to think. Here's what the passage said. The rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, how he made a pool and a conduit, and what did he do? He brought what? Water into the city. Now, if you're reading through your Bible every year, and it was the 1600s or 1700s or 1800s, you just read through this and not even stop to think about what it means. But really, it was a remarkable feat. It, to take water into the city, why? Because Jerusalem's up on a hill. How do you get water in a conduit in that city? Well, in the 1800s, there were some people doing some excavation around Jerusalem, and they found this entrance into this pool that, is the, the, that went into the ground. So they, they followed it through, and as they came out, they found that this tunnel went all the way through the bedrock under the city of Jerusalem. And there's a valley outside of Jerusalem, and there's a, a pool in there that's at the right elevation that's continually flowing water, and there's a tunnel that burrows underneath the city and pops out right into Jerusalem. That's not even the most amazing part. If you were to walk through that tunnel today, as the students from West Coast here in the picture, and I did several years ago, maybe some of you in this room have been on a trip and you've walked through this, there is water up to your knees, depending on the season, sometimes, or your height, uh, maybe up to your, uh, your uh, belt as you're walking through there, and that water today is flowing through just like it has for thousands and thousands of years. Now, if you're skeptical in the room, I don't blame you. Maybe you're sitting there wondering, how do we know that that's the tunnel that's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter number 20? Well, that's a good question. It could be just a lucky guess, except there was Hebrew written into the rock, etched into the stone, the oldest Hebrew we have ever discovered called the Siloam Inscription, and it says that this is the tunnel that Hezekiah the king dug. 
So we have this tunnel that's mentioned in the Old Testament. Today you go to Jerusalem and etch through the stone. It's actually a quarter mile. This is the amazing thing. They had people cutting through the rock this way and cutting through the rock this way, and they met in the middle with a steady grade all the way down for the water to flow. How many of you are like me? If, you're in, if you were in charge of that project, you'd have people cutting through the rock this way and people cutting through the rock this way. How many of that's how it would go if it was you, right? But no, they touch as perfect, steady grade down. It's a remarkable feat of engineering, and it's right there described for us in the Old Testament. If you walk through the area there of the New Testament or Old Testament today, you'll see multiple sites just as they're described in the, the Scripture. Here's a couple quick examples. You've got the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where Christ prayed, the, pre- the, the place of the pressing. There are olive trees here, just as there were in the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's exactly situated outside of the gate there in Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, exactly as it's described in the New Testament. You have Mount Tabor in northern, in northern Israel, described in Deborah and Barak's story, other places as well. But in Judges chapter 4 and 5, Barak kind of gets scared, if you remember this. And Deborah, the uh, female judge, says, didn't God say to go and fight Sisera? And he was like, yeah, but I'm scared. Remember the story? And, and uh, uh, Deborah says, you better go. And even, even, even now I can tell you that the glory is going to go to a woman. And he's like, all right. So they go down, they have this big fight. God brings a victory. They smash Sisera and his chariots. Just a devastating uh, uh, defeat for the enemies of Israel. He runs away. If you remember, the, uh, the, the captain runs away in jail. The, the lady with the tent peg finishes him off. That's the story. This is where it happened. This is the actual mountain you see in the distance there, that little hump. That's Mount Tabor. You can go north to where Peter lived. This is Peter's hometown of Capernaum. This is right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They've excavated down to where they're actually at the layer of the first century. Some of these stones could have been stones that Peter's sandals would have walked across as he was a child growing up. There's a house that they kind of call Peter's house. We don't know that it's Peter's house. It could be a church from that era. It's exactly as the New Testament described. The Pool of Bethesda, where Christ walked frequently, performed miracles. It's still there, Jerusalem today. When I was there, it was four years ago. It was not open yet. I'm told last year they opened this for tourists. If I go back, I'd be able to go right down in. And it's absolutely incredible. In Acts, you read about this big ruckus that happens in Ephesus. You remember them gathering together, shouting, great is Diana, God of the Ephesians. They're going to get Paul's companions. Remember that whole ruckus? And the town clerk comes in and settles them down. This is where that happened. This is in Ephesus. I've not been to this place. It's outside of Jerusalem. Can't you picture an angry mob shouting in those stones, just reverberating those noises out? This is the exact place where it occurred. Here's what I want you to get the sense of. When we read the New Testament, sometimes we think of the Bible, and we think of heaven, and we think of angels, and it seems all spiritual. It's all true, but it seems all spiritual and so far removed. It's, it's other people and other times and other places, and it's so, it's almost like, almost ghostly, almost, almost fairy ish and that's not at all the nature of the New Testament. It's a historical document rooted in the events of the New Testament, and the more we dig and the more we uncover, the more confidence we have in Scripture. Here's the good news. If you're a Christian tonight, here's the good news. There has never been a year like 2023 
when it comes to evidence for the truth of Scripture. The arguments that we have, the evidence that supports it, the collaboration from other fields of research has never been greater. It has grown every year, and it continues to grow. In fact, Chuck Colson, who did some apologetic work later in his life, made this statement that the Bible's historical accuracy is a reminder that while the heavens declare the glory of God, there's plenty of evidence among the rubble and the ruins as well. When we look at Scripture, we are seeing an absolutely incredible document. Point number two, number one, there's a lot of collaborating documents. I'm going to skip the next slide, but point number two is that when we go to, the, when we go to Scripture, what we're reading in the New Testament is written by people alive during the events that they're talking about. Now let me back up and talk about why this is important. There's a lot of people today, from Bart Ehrman to Dan Brown to anybody else you want to cite that's maybe a skeptic or a, a, a agnostic or atheist, there's a lot of people who say the Bible is simply a collection of myths. Now what we just saw pretty well disproves that, doesn't it? But people that say the Bible's just a collection of myths, here's what I want you to know. The New Testament, let's just focus on the New Testament, when the New Testament was written, the people who actually saw the events it talks about were still alive. In fact, the New Testament was written so early that I think none of the stories about miracles and resurrections and healing and feeding of the 5,000, you couldn't make those up because so many people were still alive. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, when Paul is talking about the resurrection, he said about those who saw Christ, that 500 brethren saw him at one time, and then he says, some of them have fallen asleep. He doesn't mean take a nap, right? A few of that company had passed away, but most remain to this day. What is he saying? When he's writing in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection, and by the way, he's giving an argument from eyewitnesses that Jesus actually rose from the dead. What he's saying is that most of those people who could testify that this is true, because we're all there at the same time, they're still alive. You go talk to them yourself. That's the nature of the New Testament. Of all the things we could talk about in the New Testament, one of the things that's most important is that there was the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, it's hard for me to tell you how important of an event this is. Do you know if you go to Israel today, some of you have been to Israel, I think your pastor has been to Israel, if you go to Israel today, you don't get to go and see the temple. And it's not because you're not Jewish and they're going to keep you out. There's no temple to go see, right? You can't go and see the temple. Well, what happened to it? It got destroyed. The person who destroyed it is named Titus, and it happened in 70 AD. That's a very important number to remember. Because Jesus was crucified somewhere around 32 A.D., the temple was destroyed by 70 A.D., that means you've got only a couple decades for basically the entire New Testament to be written. Talk to me later if you want to talk about Revelation or Gospel of John, that's a little bit deeper subject. But outside of that, I think the entire New Testament was written by 70 A.D. Now, how do we know that Titus destroyed the temple? Well, that part's easy. He was pretty proud of it. In fact, if you were to go to Rome today and you were to pay some money and go into the Roman Forum, you could walk around, and there's this huge arch in the Roman Forum, and on the inside left, if you're facing away from the, uh, if you're facing, 
if you're facing the way I went in, on the left, there's this inscription, and we've got a picture of it on the screen, of Titus's men carting off, if you look closely, you can see temple furniture. These are the Romans walking out of Jerusalem. This is a celebration. Uh, he didn't have social media and selfies and billboards or whatever we do to promote something today. This is him etching into stone for you and me in the last 2,000 years to see. This is how, how, how big and bad I am as Titus. I destroyed the Jews' temple. And I, we, we walked in, we tore it down, we carted the stuff away, and we left it absolutely demolished, and here's a picture of us doing it. Now, did they actually do that? For sure. If you walk down the streets of Jerusalem today, there's a pile of stones. Some of this you can't see, but there's at least one pile of stones that is from the, what we call the Second Temple, or the Second Temple era, or Herod's Temple, from the uh, intertestament period that was there when Jesus was born. They destroyed this temple. They threw the stones down. Some of those stones are this pile of bolters right there. Now, how important was that to the Jews? There is literally no story I can tell you to help you grasp the significance. But let me try. For those of you that are my age or older in the room, you may remember the events on 9-11, when the terrorists flew the planes into the Twin Towers. I remember where I was. If you're my age or even close to it or older, you remember where you were too when you heard the news of this tragedy. Imagine I was reading a, a book about some people's lives. It's a biography, and as I read this biography, someone asked me, when was that book written? Well, the title page is missing, so I can't look at the copyright date. And the book is about people in the financial sector who were involved in business. They lived in New York, and they went in and out of the Twin Towers multiple times in the biography. I finished the biography. With it out, without it ever mentioning the destruction of the Twin Towers. Every reference to the Twin Towers is in the present tense, not the past tense. Would I be safe in assuming that that biography was written before 2001? I think the evidence would be pretty conclusive. That's almost an exact scenario of what we find in the New Testament. While the destruction of the temple is never recorded, it is prophesied by Christ in the Olivet Discourse, which we find in all of the Synoptic Gospels. The Olivet Discourse tells Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple. Have you ever noticed no one in the New Testament ever said, see, I told you Jesus was the prophet? Now, does this phrase sound familiar? Have you read your Bible through many, many times over your life? Have you ever read a phrase like this? That it might be fulfilled. Have you ever read that? that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the prophets. All the time, right? It's all throughout the New Testament. It's certainly all throughout Matthew multiple times. No one ever said that about Jesus's Olivet Discourse. Why? Because it hadn't occurred yet when these accounts were written. Another argument we could give is that Ignatius, one of the early uh, post-apostle uh, church fathers. He died in 115 AD. He actually quotes from part of the Gospel of Matthew. Well, obviously he does this prior to his death. The Gospel of Matthew is in circulation prior to that. 
In fact, there are so many things missing in the Bible that you'd expect to be there. It really helps us narrow down the, down the gap. I'm going to go quick, but try to, try to think through this process. Okay, let me start with a trivia question that a lot of you are going to know. There are two books in the New Testament written by a guy named Luke. One of them we call Luke, the Gospel of Luke. What's the other one? The other one is Acts. I heard a couple people say it. So the same guy wrote two books. Don't be surprised Paul wrote more than that. So Luke wrote a gospel, and he also wrote a book that we call the Acts of the Apostles. Now guess what? When you go through Acts, there are lots of things missing. Not because they're not true, not because they're not important, because they hadn't yet occurred. Consider these. When you read through the Gospel of Acts, you find that James, the half-brother of Jesus, is not his death, which was in 61 AD, is not mentioned at all. The death of Paul in 64 AD, in fact, when this ends, Paul is in jail, and he hasn't died yet. He's killed in 64 AD, not mentioned in Acts. Nero's persecution. Oh, I'd love to talk about that. We could talk about it all night. How many already knew before you came to church, Nero's a bad guy? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? He's a bad guy, right? slaughtered Christians, had this horrific way, he tortured people, just awful, awful guy. Killed his own mother? Nero was a bad guy. Well, Nero's persecution that you know so much about, did you know it's not ever talked about in the New Testament? How do we know about it? Well, the guy's name's Tacticus. He's not a Christian. We'll talk about him next week. He's from secular history. But it happens in 64 AD. Try this out. Is this a good argument? Well, the reason why Nero's persecution isn't mentioned is it happened in Rome, and there's no, there's no part of the New Testament focused on Rome. Is that a good argument or a bad one? That's a bad argument, because there's a book written to that city. We call it Romans, right? Yet why do you read through Romans without any reference to the persecution of Nero, which we know happened in 64 AD? Because it hadn't happened yet. Peter dies, as we know from church history in 65 AD. His death is not recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Now watch this. If, if Paul, if the apostle Peter, I'm sorry, if Luke wrote Acts before any of these events, he wrote it, what, by 60 AD, right? Did you see it? He writes Luke prior to writing Acts. Say, so how do you know that? Well, Luke begins by saying the former treatise, the former book that I wrote, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That's how we know. He opens it up by saying this is the second part. So you go back to Acts, or you go back from Acts to Luke, maybe Luke was written in the 50s. Luke begins by referencing other Gospels already written. Luke says, many have taken in hand to write the things most surely believed among us. So Luke, when he starts the Gospel, knows other Gospels are already out. What other Gospels were already out when Luke wrote his? Well, I think Mark was written first, and Matthew after that, and I think Luke was number three, and John was number four. We can talk about why I think that later. But what we do know is that Luke was written in the early, in the mid-50s. The other Gospels were written maybe as early as the late 40s, late, early 50s at the latest. Now again, if Jesus dies in the early 30s, you have only 15 years of gap between the events 
of the, the uh, healing of the blind man, the uh, casting out of the, the devils, of the, the swine, of the walking on the water, the feeding the 5,000, all these miracles that Jesus did 15 years later, they're already written and published and circulated and being preached. Wouldn't it be cool to be in a church service and have somebody preach about the feeding of the 5,000 and have somebody beside you going, quiet, I'm listening. What? My uncle was there. He actually ate some of the fish. He actually ate some of the bread. Wouldn't that be cool? And that's the world that the New Testament was written and sent into. It was a world where Jesus had done. How do you recognize many of Jesus' miracles were very, very public? Have you ever wondered why the Pharisees hated him do miracles on Sunday? Or I mean on, on the Sabbath? One is they <clears throat> thought he was violating the law. But let me let you in on a secret. The other reason they hated it is because every stinking person was there to watch him do it on the Sabbath. They didn't like that. They didn't like the public notoriety of these, these very open, widely observed miracles that Jesus did on the Temple Mount of all places to heal somebody, on the Sabbath of all days of the week. Everybody saw them. And this is a part of the evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. So you've got all of these miracles that are recorded, and people knew that they happened. In fact, when Peter, when Paul actually stands at his trial, he says, these things are most surely known by you, right? They're widely known. We also know that when Hebrews records the temple, it talks about it in the present tense. We know that James, who died in 61 AD, obviously wrote his epistle, probably the first actually epistle of the New Testament is, the, uh, is James. That almost certainly was from the 40s, the decade right after Christ died. So here's what we've seen, that, that we've just scratched the surface, as you can tell, that every time you turn a corner, the Bible is validated by any evidence you want to dig up. Whether scientific, archaeological, any historical, any direction you want to look, the Bible stands true, and demonstrably so. The second thing we saw is that the New Testament is an eyewitness account, written and circulated within a few decades of the death of Christ. The third aspect that we have to consider before we go tonight is how do we know that we still have what was originally given. If the New Testament is true, since the New Testament is true, since it was written uh, inspired and inerrant, you can show all of this historical evidence for it, you can show that it was written early during the lifespan of the eyewitnesses, all that's true. Now the question is, couldn't it have gotten lost over time? Couldn't have the mistakes accumulated so much that it's no longer reliable? And my answer to that is no, no, 5,000 times no. And the reason why is we can look back and we can see how God did what he said he would do. By the way, what did God say he would do? Remember where we started tonight, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I know 16 and 17 gets all the press. Let's look at 15. Because here, Paul says, to a young man, a young man, Timothy, that from a child he had known the Scriptures. Now, I've got a secret for you. He's not talking about the New Testament. Because when Timothy was a young man, there was no New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. And guess what? He didn't have 
the original stones that Moses wrote the Ten Commandments on. He didn't have them. He didn't have the original autograph that was given at the time of inspiration. Timothy didn't have those either. You know what Timothy had? Timothy had copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. In fact, I think there's a good argument to be made that he was reading the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of copies of copies of copies of copies. And you know what Paul says to Timothy, that what you had, those copies of copies, that was Scripture. It didn't, it wasn't no longer Scripture because it was copies of copies. Why? Because God has preserved His Word. The way that God preserves His Word through time is quite simple. You've got four distinct phases of preservation. I'll walk through these, we'll wrap it up in a minute with a verse, and I'll be around if you have questions. But sometimes we don't We don't describe these accurately. Now watch this. There's a difference between uh, autograph, a manuscript, a text, and a modern language translation. Let me walk through what those are. First, you have an autograph. How many of you have an autographed something? How many of you have something autographed at home? Anybody have something autographed? What? Uh, uh, how about a baseball card? Anybody have autographed baseball card? A couple of those. Autographed maybe a hat. Anybody have a hat or a jersey? Something like that. Got some. Okay. So what makes it autographed? Maybe a book autographed by the author? The, the artist or the author or the, the, the athlete signed it, right? Made it autographed? That's what an autograph is. It's them writing it. Okay, so for every part of the Bible, there's exactly one autograph at any point in history. The autograph is this initial inspiration that God, the Bible says, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's inspiration. There's always one. By the way, we don't have these any longer. They're lost, worn out over time. The next step is a manuscript. Now, a manuscript doesn't come from inspiration directly. The verb for each of these nouns, the manuscript comes from copying. So you get, uh, you have one manuscript here, you got a blank piece of vellum or, or papyrus or whatever you're writing on, and you're copying it out. Have you ever made a copy? How many of you can remember, I remember as a kid, this shows my age, if we go over to somebody's house and there was an amazing meal prepared, I remember my mom sometimes asking, can I have your recipe? Now today, if you want a recipe, what would you do? You'd probably take the recipe card, if that even exists, and you'd go, ching, got it, thanks. But how many of you remember taking a three-by-five card and copying something out? Have you ever done that? That was a long time ago, but that's what the scribes did. They made a copy, and that copy of the copy or a copy of the autograph is called a manuscript. The third noun is a text. Now, I teach Greek at the college level. I teach from the Textus Receptus, and you can buy a text of the Greek for about 20 bucks in our bookstore. You can probably find them on Amazon for the same price. This is a published printed collation of manuscripts, because the manuscripts are always partial, except for very few, literally single digits out of the thousands and thousands. Most manuscripts are one book or a few books. Most of them actually are a fragment of a book. So you've got to take all these manuscripts and you spread them out, and these manuscripts, they have a little bit of variance between them, so you've got to compare them and look at them and ask, okay, how can we put them together and get the original 
how can we collate them together so that we publish that? And what we have here, this King James Version, is translated from the Byzantine text family, which is represented in the Textus Receptus text. So you've got autograph, you've got original autographs, you've got manuscripts, you've got a text, which you get through textual criticism or collation, and then you have, I'm glad for this, a modern language version. How many of you glad you don't have to learn Hebrew to read the Bible? You should be. I was a kid for uh, growing up in church, and I would read Psalms, and we called them poems. And I used to think, I wish I knew Hebrew. Then I could read them, and I would understand how they're a poem. Well, years later, I had the unfortunate experience in seminary of having to learn Hebrew. And I've got bad news for you. They don't rhyme in Hebrew either. <laughs> it's a totally different way they think of poetry. It's, it wasn't even fair. It wasn't worth it. I, I'm glad I don't have to learn Hebrew to read the Old Testament or learn Greek to read the New Testament. So we have a modern language version, and that's through translation. But guess what we see? Throughout this process, God is preserving His Word. And even though these are human processes, God superintends, God is able to sovereignly oversee so that we have a reliable copy today. And we can look back to the text and see this. There's something very unusual about the text of the New Testament. You can list all kinds of ancient manuscripts and uh, ancient writers, and you look at the number of manuscripts that they have. In fact, let's just jump to the next slide because it takes the same information and puts them on a bar graph. Let me just take three examples of ancient writers. You've got the New Testament. Here's four, I guess. Uh, the Iliad, Plato, and Aristotle. We've heard of all those people, right? And the New Testament, of course. On the left graph, you have how many manuscripts you have. And on the right graph, you have the gap between the original and the oldest copy. On the left, if you wanted something that was really super reliable, would you want a lot or a few manuscripts? You'd want a lot, wouldn't you? When it comes to the New Testament, we are actually 50, this says 5,600, uh, we're after, actually at 5,800 and counting, because we're discovering these all the time. We have more all the time than we did the year before. We have over 5,800 manuscripts of the New Testament. Say, wow, that's incredible. It's incredible. <laughs> when you compare it to any other ancient manuscript, it's different by a matter of degrees compared to how big of a gap is there. Well, I already talked a little bit about John. One of the oldest manuscripts we have is the John Rylands fragment, P52. And even secular scholars date that to at least 125 AD. That means you have less than 50-year gap, or around 50 years. There's a few documents that may even be older than that, and John, uh, John was the last written. So you have about 50 years tops between the original, manu the original autograph and the earliest copy, the manuscript that we have. Why is that important? Well, if you have a long period of time, people might say, well, maybe you had a lot of air slip in before the earliest copy. Is that even possible with the New Testament? The answer is no. It's not even possible. The manuscript evidence is so overwhelming that even if we didn't have it, we could reconstruct the entire Bible from quotes of the early church fathers and only be missing, is it 9 or 11? I think it's nine, 11. Only be missing 11 verses. We don't need that. We don't rely on that because we've got almost 6,000 manuscripts. We also have 19,000 plus 
early translations of the Old Latin, the Syriac, Peshitta, and other uh, ancient languages that are translations from those original documents. We have such a mountain of evidence, manuscript-wise, that backs up the New Testament that our confidence is absolutely well-placed. Again, we're not simply talking about what to believe, but why, not how we know, but how we show. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Scripture says, For all flesh is as grass, all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord, that's not even the logos of the Lord, that's the rhema of the uh, Lord there. This is something certainly included in Scripture. The word of the Lord by which the gospel is, word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. So how do we know? that the Bible is reliable. We believe it. But how do we know? <laughs> well, this is just a sampling of the evidence that can be brought to bear for your faith and for mine. Last week, we asked the question, can we know that there's a God? And the answer is, absolutely so. Nothing even comes close to explaining the universe compared to the Creator God revealed in Scripture. Today we ask, can I trust the Bible? Do we have historical, archaeological uh, evidence? We do. Can we show that there was not mythological uh, time to sl slip in and make it legendary material? Yeah, it was written by eyewitnesses. Do we have enough evidence in the manuscripts to have confidence in the reading and the, the translation that we have? We absolutely do. There is no reason for a lack of faith. And for you and I as a Christian, what a gift we have of confidence that our faith is true. Our faith is incredibly needed in the world in which we live. And we get to go and live it and share it. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.